still in our series of John. In fact, someone stopped me in the lobby before first hour and said, are we still in John 6? And the answer is yes, we're still in John 6. Uh, all of November we have been in John 6. But uh, unless the Lord comes sometime in the next 30, 40 minutes, we'll finish John 6 today uh, by His grace. Um, you might have seen this in the news recently, just before the midterm election. One of the cast members of Saturday Night Live during a segment called the Weekend Update, he was poking fun, making fun of conservative candidates. He chose to make fun of a Republican candidate from candidate for Congress from outside of Houston, um, saying his eye patch made him look like a hitman for an adult film. Here's his picture. He's the one on the left, unless you can't figure that out. First hour laughed at that. That's okay. And as you might expect, the Internet exploded with outrage since the reason Lieutenant Commander Crenshaw wears an eye patch was because he lost his eye to an IED in Afghanistan. And so he responded with a tweet that said, Good rule in life. I try hard not to offend. I try harder not to be offended. That being said, I hope NBC SNL recognizes that vets don't deserve to see their wounds used as punchlines for bad jokes. And this is a good rule in life. Try not to offend. But here's another rule. Don't pick a fight with a Navy SEAL. Usually doesn't go well for you. In his victory speech after uh, the election, Crenshaw said, SEALs don't get offended. That's not just what we do. It doesn't mean it wasn't offensive, but let's stop demanding apologies and firings of people. Let's just demand that comedy actually be funny. And then let's be good people. Kind of like you demand that sermons should be short and funny, and you get neither of them. It just doesn't happen that way. But Congressman-elect Crenshaw's approach, try hard not to offend, try harder not to be offended, is pretty rare today. At times it seems that the fuel of our popular culture is offense or outrage, or at least that's what fuels the 24-hour media cycle. We see it in politics where it's used to scare people, to get out the, the vote, motivate the base. We see it in media where they use it to drive eyeballs and views and clicks as a way to drive advertising revenue. But what about God? Have you ever been offended by God? Ever been disappointed by Jesus? Maybe offended by what God's done, what He hasn't done, what He's allowed to happen to you. Maybe it's difficulties in your family, a child who has strayed, health challenges, a lost job. Ever caught yourself saying or maybe just thinking, gosh, if I were God, I sure wouldn't do that. Or maybe in frustration you've cried out, I don't know what you're doing here, God. I wish you'd show me. 
Maybe you're offended by grace because there's just a little piece inside of you that wants to earn the favor of God. Our passage today is John 6, verses 60 through 71, and it describes the aftermath of Jesus' teaching in Capernaum that we've been covering the last few weeks. And today we find the disciples offended by the teaching of Jesus. And there's something important for us to learn in their response, and it's this. If we are not regularly offended by God, and by that I mean if our view of God, of who He is and who and what He does, isn't ever challenged, doesn't ever grow or expand, it might just be because we've created our own version of God. And coincidentally, it's likely to be a God who rules just like we would, reveals things and rewards just like we would, cares about the exact same things we care about, lets us do our own thing. More Santa Claus, and less sovereign God of the universe. More works to deserve, and less grace. Said our passage today is John 6, verse 60 to 71, and I've divided it into two sections. The first half covers the reasons to reject, verses 60 to 65, and then the second half of the passage, 66 to 71, shows us three responses to the revelation of Jesus. As we read this passage, I want you to wrestle with the question that I've wrestled with all week long. And that is, how do you respond to the offense of God? Because the things that offended these disciples are the same things we struggle with today. So let's read beginning... John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, You take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The passage begins with 
when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So the total group of followers, the crowds that followed Jesus, was probably more than 10,000 people at this time. And then within that crowd that had come to see Jesus, there was a more committed group of followers and disciples who would travel with Jesus as he went. And then within that group, there was the 12, kind of the inner circle. But all of these groups could be called disciples. But the focus here is likely on that middle group, uh, the more committed followers, but not the 12, who Jesus is going to address later in this chapter. They've just heard the teachings of Jesus throughout all of chapter 6, which is what the first and second it refers to in verse 1661. As they describe it as a hard saying. The Greek word here is skleros, which literally means dry or hard or rough. And figuratively, the term describes something or someone as unyielding or something that's not received without discomfort. Distressing news or challenging concepts could be called hard. Jesus' teaching wasn't difficult for the disciples to understand. It was just hard for them to accept it. It was offensive. Jesus confirms the meaning by asking the rhetorical question in verse 61. Do you take offense at this? Offense here is literally trapped in. The Greek term, skandalizo, to spring back or forth or to slam closed like a steel trap that would trap an animal. It's where we get our English word scandal, where someone is trapped by their actions. So what are these hard, difficult-to-accept, offensive teachings that cause the disciples to grumble just like their fathers did in the desert? Now, I think you could summarize them, those teachings, the, the first 58 verses of chapter 6, and put them into just three categories. And as I list these, I think you'll see why these are things we still struggle with today. The first is... Some of these followers were only interested in the blessings or the benefits of following Jesus. They were blessing chasers. Chapter 6 started with the feeding of the 5,000. And then in verse 26, when the crowd finds Jesus, he says that you're here just because you ate your fill of bread. You know, we live in a time of great material abundance. And I'm pretty sure that most of you aren't following Jesus to get the little bit of bread that we serve here on the first Sunday of every month. But we do live in a culture here in our little part of the Bible Belt where there are benefits to identifying as a Christian. Or at least there's not a penalty associated with being a Christian. So let me put it this way. When you meet a new person in Tyler, Texas, let me give you some advice here. There's three questions you can ask them. The first is, what is your name? And then the second is usually, where do you go to church? Or maybe it's where you work. You better have an answer to those three questions if you want to fit in here in Tyler, Texas. But it's not like that everywhere, even here in the United States, much less in the world like the places Steve was telling us about um, earlier. So this is the first reason to reject 
You're really just a blessing chaser. And when life gets hard or this Jesus thing gets too serious, you're out. You don't want any part of that. The second reason that some were following Jesus was for political power. They were looking for the Messiah to become the king of Israel and kick the Romans out of the promised land. This is verse 14 and 15 from chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then Jesus, perceiving that when they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We see this play out several times in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus, When will he become king? When will his kingdom come? And who will get to reign with him? That was over 2,000 years ago, but we still have that happening today. Politicians that wear their faith on their sleeves, they have quick conversions to become baby Christians, and worse, Christians who are discipled more by Fox News or CNN than they are the truth revealed in the Bible. Christians whose allegiance is to a party first before their Savior or His church. And when an election doesn't go the way we think it should, which is often, like maybe it did in 2008 or 2012 or even 2016. Was your faith shaken? Did you think that Romans 13.1 was a little less, or a little more true the day after the election, depending on how it went? That's Romans 13.1 that says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Let me take the suspense out of it in case you're wondering. That statement is true, equally true, the day before and the day after the election, regardless of who controls the White House, the State House, or your house. And that's the second reason to be offended by Jesus. He won't be a tool for our political power. So number one is don't be a blessing chaser. Number two, Jesus is not your political pawn. And the third reason to be offended by Jesus is the claims he makes about himself. That he was greater than Moses in verse 33. That he was from heaven, uniquely sent by God the Father, and that he had to die... For us to have eternal life. Eating flesh and drinking blood would be offensive back then, and it still is today. But especially to observant Jews who couldn't even eat meat with blood still in it. In fact, the early Christians were persecuted as being cannibals because people misunderstood this teaching to be literally eating, not metaphorically or spiritually eating flesh and drinking blood. But there's another claim by Jesus here that's even more offensive to our culture today than it would have been probably to this original audience. And it's the claim of exclusivity. That Jesus is the only way. He'll be more specific later in John, but here in chapter 6, Jesus says He is the true bread of life. So the broad reasons these followers of Jesus are offended, one is they're blessing chasers. Two, 
they try to use Jesus as their political tool. And three, they were offended at who Jesus said he was. So in marriage counseling, one of the conflict resolutions that we get taught is the timeout. Most of your parents are familiar with the timeout, and this is not the kind of timeout where you get mad at your spouse and you send her to the corner or him to his room. The adult timeout is in when one of you realizes that the fighting part of my brain is taking over from the thinking part of my brain. And we better stop this train before it runs off the track. And so you say, hey, I need a timeout. Let's calm down. Let's get back together at this time on this day, and we'll continue this conversation. But I can't do it right now. That's the kind of timeout that adults need to take. But Jesus does the exact opposite here. Look in verse 62. He doubles down. He presses in. He doesn't comfort. He doesn't soften or qualify it like we would be inclined to do. He basically says, oh yeah, if you think that's hard, if that's offensive, how do you feel about this? Verse 62 then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now this is a double whammy, which is a technical theological term we learn in seminary that refers to a statement that can be taken at least two ways. So here's the first half of the whammy. Based on what Jesus said earlier, the disciples were offended that he claimed to be from heaven. And now he says, not only am I from heaven, but I'm actually going back. Jesus looks past the crucifixion to his ascension, past the shame on the cross to the glory at his ascension. And the second half of the whammy is that this ruins all their political plans because the Messiah, the King, is leaving. He's not going to stay and reign. Then Jesus keeps going. Verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are three things about this teaching that are hard for the disciples. The first is it completes a Trinitarian view of God's plan of redemption. In this passage, you see, it's the Father who draws, the Father who gives those who believe. The Father sends the Son. The Son gives His flesh, His life. And through belief in Him, the Spirit gives life. And I think there's some foreshadowing in the structure here. Why does Jesus go from His ascension and then abruptly seems to start talking about the Spirit? I think it's because Jesus must go so that the Helper the Spirit may come to illuminate the truth, to bring life. So what we have in chapter 6 is one true God, unified God, who distinctly works as three persons in the plan of salvation as Father, Son, and Spirit. The second reason they would be offended is that Jesus is claiming superiority to Moses and the law. Jesus wrote down the words of God as the law. And the view of the Jews at that time was that the law gives life. But here, Jesus, who John called the Word incarnate, 
is saying it's His words that bring life. And now the third and probably the most offensive claim that Jesus makes, offensive to the original audience, and I'm sure it's even offensive to us today, is that all of this, the process of salvation to eternal life, is an exclusive sovereign act of God. Look back at verse 63. It's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh, our unregenerated self, as the text says, is no help at all. There's no wiggle room here in English or Greek. I checked. No help at all. Look back at verse 28 you'll see them asking the same question we find ourselves asking. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. No work. Don't earn it. Just believe. Verse 64 and 65, But there are some of you who do not believe, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Which makes no sense if everyone is granted belief. And certainly when you pair it with verse 64 that says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. The reason they did not believe was because the Father did not grant them belief. Which might be offensive to some, but it doesn't make it any less true. No work, just believe. And even that belief, the ability to come to the Son, is granted by the Father. It's a work of grace, undeserved favor, nothing you can earn, just belief. Just faith. Just reliance on Jesus. Permitted by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. So why is that offensive? What's so bad about that? Why is that? I think there's one word to describe it. And it's pride. Every one of us has a a me monster inside us. And that me monster wants to be fed. Has to be fed. I have it. You have it. We want to take credit. We want to earn our way, even if it's just a little bit. We want to deserve it. We want to believe that there was something special and unique about us. And God looked at us in attorney's past and said, I choose that one because of something in us. But this passage doesn't give us the opportunity to do that. The flesh is no help at all. Unless it's the flesh of the crucified, risen Son of God, Jesus. But that doesn't mean that there aren't also choices we make that we're held accountable for. And the rest of the chapter shows us three possible responses or choices we have 
when we're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is and how we are saved to eternal life. Look at verse 66. You see the first option, which is rejection. After many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, these disciples, these followers, literally unfollowed, they unfriended Jesus. Jesus claimed he was from heaven, sent by God, and they didn't leave. Told them they weren't going to make him king, and they didn't leave. Told them he was the only way to eternal life. They didn't leave. Said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they didn't leave. But say their flesh, their will, is no contribution, is no help at all, and they're out. They chose to go feed the me monster somewhere else. They chose other things that are less valuable that will fail them, that will disappoint them, that aren't nearly so offensive to the me monster. And that was the choice of many of Jesus' disciples. What they wanted, he would not give, and what he offered, they rejected. So if Jesus had a Facebook page, it would be at this moment that his followers went from tens of thousands down to maybe a few hundred. So that's the first possible response to the gospel, which is rejection. And the second option is reliance. Look at 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? The text didn't say how many disciples had already left, just that many of them did. But Jesus is addressing the inner circle now. He's addressing the twelve. And the construction of the Greek tells us he expects a negative response. It's a rhetorical question when he asks in verse 64 because he tells us he knows who will believe and he knows who will betray. So Simon Peter, as he often does, speaking for the twelve says, or he confesses in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Three quick observations about Peter's confession. To whom shall we go? Really means what other rabbi, what other teacher could we follow? Which at first sounds like a good statement of the superiority of Jesus. But maybe it's more like this. Just imagine you're married. Your spouse asks you, honey, are you going to leave me? And your answer was, of course not. Where else could I go? I'm fat, bald, and 52. I got no better options. And then you duck. Peter didn't understand everything that Jesus had said, as the text will prove painfully later. But he did rely on verse 63. The words of Jesus bring life, and he did not, and that he did come from God. 
calling Jesus the Holy One of God, which is the only time John uses this title to describe Jesus. It only occurs in one other place in the New Testament, and that's when Jesus is confronted by a man who has a demon in the same synagogue in Capernaum where this takes place. And when Jesus confronts him, the man, the demon, calls Jesus the Holy One of God. So Peter witnessed that. He was there. So now his confession doesn't quite sound as strong. We've got no better alternative than repeating what I heard a demon say. But it reminds me of the confession of the man who comes to Jesus to heal his son in Mark 9. And Jesus tells him it's possible for his son to be healed if he believes. And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. This faith, this reliance on Jesus, even when you don't fully understand him or what he's doing. Then in verse 70, again, Jesus doesn't congratulate Peter, affirm him, say, good job, give him a gold star. Instead, he says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? So in Peter's response, in response to Peter's confession that, hey, we believe and we've come to know who you are, Jesus reminds them that before they believed, before they came to know that He chose them, knowing who would believe and who would betray. You know, I said at the beginning of the sermon that if you weren't occasionally offended by God, you might have a tame version of God that you've created, surprisingly, in your own image. An idol. The best remedy for that is to constantly compare the God you've created to the God that is revealed in the Bible. The only way I know to tame or kill the knee monster. So the first option is rejection. The second is reliance, which brings us to the third option. Third way you can respond to the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And that's deception. You can fake it. Verse 71 explains that Jesus was speaking of Judas, one of the twelve. This is the first time John has mentioned Judas by name. He had all the marks, the external marks, of being a key disciple. He didn't leave when these other folks left. He's even got significant responsibility among the twelve as he manages their finances. And yet, the text calls him a devil. Looks, acts, talks like a disciple, and yet he's the devil. I think this is important for two reasons. The first is it's another example of God's sovereignty in the process of redemption. The Father enables belief. He sends the Son who must die. He chooses His disciples knowing when He chooses the one who will betray Him. He wasn't outmaneuvered by Judas. He wasn't fooled by Judas. 
wasn't deceived. It was the will of the Father who sent him. The second reason I think it's important to include this third response, this deception, is because in some ways it's more dangerous than even rejection. I say that while ultimately it has the same result, eternal judgment, it's more dangerous because although you can fool us, you're not fooling God. Which means we won't be praying for you. We won't be sharing the gospel with you. won't be working or looking for that opportunity to come alongside you and share the good news of who Jesus is. Because you've got a fool. You can go to church. You can use all the right words. Maybe even quote a little Bible here and there. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe you've even joined a church. Maybe this church. But inwardly, in your heart, you're hardened to the truth of who Jesus is, who you are. As Paul describes you as an enemy of the gospel, unable to partake in true fellowship in this life, this eternal life that Jesus promises. And the words of Jesus ring hollow to you, or maybe even offensive. Rejection, reliance, or deception. So where does that leave you today? How are you going to respond to Jesus? What He says about you, what He says about me, what He says about Himself, and what He does for us, which are really the central Questions for all of eternity and everything you ever have or ever will be hangs on how you answer that question. Earlier this year I met a woman here in Tyler who described herself as an atheist who loves and believes the teachings of Jesus. I said respectfully well surely that can't be true and she assured me that it was that she believed and followed the Jesus ethic that she loved her neighbor cared for the poor served others in her estimation better than a lot of those folks who claim to be Christian and I asked her how she felt about his claim to be the son of God she said oh of course I don't believe that which was the perfect example of the, that famous C.S. Lewis quote about separating the moral teachings of Jesus for his claims about who he was. This is C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. And even though salvation is a sovereign act of God, we still have a choice. Be offended or be open to what Jesus says in the Bible about himself, about us, and the way of salvation. Reject or rely on the truth 
that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who stepped out of glory onto earth, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. And though he did not deserve it, he willingly went to a cross where he was killed for our sin. He literally lay in the ground for three days. And he was raised by the power of the Father. He ascended three days later. And at this moment, sits at the right hand of his Father, interceding for us. You can believe that or reject it. And that's all we must do to be saved, is to believe. Confess that we're sinners who need a Savior, and that Jesus is who He said He was, and He did what He said He did. You don't have to fully understand it. You don't need a degree in theology. You just have to rely that might be offensive to some, maybe even some here, and I hope not. Paul takes the opposite approach. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. That is spirit, and that is the way of eternal life and truth. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you are sovereign, that you're in charge.